Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host, TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast. In this bonus episode, I share my top 20 non-MCU films of 2021. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me for updates and behind-the-scenes extras at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also support the show by purchasing There Was an Idea merchandise from Spring. The link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. All right. Hello there, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for this non-MCU related episode of the podcast. This is something that I have not really done before. I've talked about a couple of movies that haven't been MCU, but they've still been Marvel adjacent. So thank you for joining me for this experiment in branching out a little bit. By this point, I'm sure you've heard my 2021 MCU year in review that I did with Ellie of Oshoot and Sean of The Caption Light. If you haven't checked out that episode yet, you can to hear my thoughts and my rankings of all of the MCU installments of 2021. But today I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the other standout movies that I saw this past year. As I've talked about on the podcast many times, this was the year of my moving closer to an AMC theater and joining the AMC A-List Stubbs membership program. And I've talked a number of times about going to the movie theater pretty frequently this year. And I am a big movie fan. It extends beyond just the world of superhero and comic book movies. And so I figured why not share some of the other work that resonated with me and perhaps uh, be able to pass on some recommendations to, to you all. So in 2021, I actually tracked the number of new releases from that year that I saw. And the total number up to this point has been 60 my goal for 2022 is to see even more current year releases than that. 60 is a nice round number, though. I'm glad that it came out to, to that. Although there are still a few 2021 releases that I have yet to see. So I'll mention those up front. It's very possible once I see these films, they would crack the top 20 of my favorites from the year. <clears throat> Belfast, I've yet to see. Don't know why I never got around to it, but I'm excited to see it and hoping to do so before Oscar season kicks in. The French Dispatch. Wes Anderson's film from this past year, have not seen yet. I did not see Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. I did not see the other movie that Andrew Garfield is getting a lot of buzz for this year, Tick, Tick, Boom. Although that's been on my list to watch. I'm looking forward to it. And finally, there's a Japanese film called Drive My Car, which has gotten a lot of really good buzz. And I haven't been able to track it down, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing that one as well. So those are just a few of the 2021 films that I didn't get a chance to see yet. And I certainly plan on doing so. But this is actually the second time that I have begun recording this episode here today. An earlier version of it will exist on my computer and never to see the light of day because at the time, I, I just felt like I needed a little bit more time, see a couple more movies and really think through how I wanted to, to present this here today. So I could probably spend a great deal of time talking about all 20 of these titles, but I'm not going to do that. For 20 through 16, I'm just going to list the title of the film and the director 15 through 11, I might share a little bit more than that uh, about the film. And then 10 through 1, I will share some more specifics about what I really enjoyed, what resonated with me. That's the plan, at least. Can't promise that I won't stray from, from that plan a little bit. And I'll also say that I felt like 2021 was a really good year for movies. Like all 60 of the titles that I saw, I enjoyed something about them in some way or another. And so the top 20 are really the best of the best of what I saw this year. At number 20, I have The Night House. This is a film directed by David Bruckner, starring Rebecca Hall, 
This is a horror flick, which is a, it's a genre I enjoy a great deal. And Rebecca Hall's performance in this movie was really, really excellent. So I recommend it if you haven't seen it yet. The Night House. Number 19, a comic book movie from across the aisle. The Suicide Squad, directed by James Gunn, starring many people, <laughs> among them Margot Robbie, Idris Elba, John Cena, Joel Kinnaman, Viola Davis. Star-studded cast. And what I'll say about The Suicide Squad is that I enjoyed it way more than I was expecting to enjoy it. And I found myself taken with how amazing this movie looked. So Suicide Squad at number 19. Number 18, animated movie called The Mitchells vs. The Machines, directed by Michael Rianda. This stars the voice talents of Abby Jacobson, among others. This is a nice, quirky family movie that feels very much of the 2020s and highly enjoyed it and recommend it to anyone looking for looking for an animated family-friendly movie. Number 17, a movie that I just saw at the time of this recording, and I'm so glad that I got to squeeze it in before doing this, Nightmare Alley, directed by Guillermo del Toro, starring Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Willem Dafoe, among others. I was very much looking forward to this one. And I have to admit, I saw only the newly released black and white cut of the film. I didn't see the original cut that came out in color. I don't know how much that would have impacted my experience, but I loved visually what this movie looked like. Elements of horror and bizarre, disturbing visuals coupled with a real homage to film noir, excellent performances from the actors. Highly recommend Nightmare Alley. Number 16, this one really took me by surprise when I saw it earlier this year. This is one of the first movies I saw once I moved and was really starting to go back to theaters all the time. Uh, this is Cruella. was not expecting this movie to be what it was. Uh, directed by Craig Gillespie and starring Emma Stone as the titular character, also starring Emma Thompson. This movie was great. The aesthetics, the 1970s London fashion world setting, the music really, really took me by surprise. Highly recommend Cruella. It's probably worth mentioning as I go through this to note which of these I did see in the theater and which I did not. So of the ones I mentioned so far, I saw Nightmare Alley and Cruella in the movie theaters. The Night House and the Suicide Squad I saw at home, even though those did get theatrical releases. And The Mitchells vs. the Machines was a Netflix release. Actually, the next few of these on the list are also Netflix releases. At number 15, a movie called I Care A Lot. I don't know if this is quite as well known as some of the other titles on this list. Directed by Jay Blakeson, starring Rosamund Pike as a very morally twisted main character here. She is a court-appointed legal guardian who is defrauding clients. And it's a movie that is kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. I've actually watched it a couple of times because as awful as that premise is and how nasty of a character she is, as well as the some of the characters she surrounds herself with, it's uh, a movie with some twists and turns and it's kind of delightfully mustache twirlingly satirically funny. That movie dropped on Netflix last February, but Rosamund Pike also won a Golden Globe for it last season, so I think some people maybe saw this movie in 2020 at festivals and things like that, but I'm counting it as a 2021 movie. At number 14, another Netflix release, The Power of the Dog, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, directed by Jane Campion. This is a beautiful film to look at, and the performances by the actors I just mentioned, as well as Cody Smith-McPhee, who plays a boy, a younger character, are just really captivating. I almost don't really know what to say about this movie without spoiling it. The description that is usually given is that it focuses on this rancher in Montana during the 1920s, and there's a tension between more modern ways of life, represented by Cumberbatch's character's brother, played by Jesse Plemons, and 
his new wife and her son. And Cumberbatch's character carries a little bit more of a, a more of a old school sense of what it means to work the kind of work that he does. And there's a lot of ideas of masculinity tied into the film. I don't, but it's also got like a thriller feel to it. And I don't want to give away anything that happens in it. I just highly recommend it. It's very atmospheric. It's slow, but a, a beautiful film that really stuck with me. Atmospheric Netflix releases are, I guess, a thing that I enjoy because at <laughs> number 13, I have a film called The Lost Daughter. This movie is directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal and stars Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley as current and past versions of the same character. Also stars Dakota Johnson. This movie is based on a novel by Elena Ferrante, which I have not read, but it's another movie that is very thematic, focuses on the idea of motherhood and all of the, the burdens that can come along with that. Like some of these others, the, the characters that you're focusing on are not necessarily good people, but there are some really interesting explorations of the choices that they make and what drives them to do so. So I highly recommend The Lost Daughter. This actually came out at the very, very end of 2021 on Netflix. At number 12, a movie I was very much looking forward to seeing in the theaters, and I did. It's House of Gucci, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Jared Leto, Al Pacino, star-studded cast. A really campy movie. The tone is probably not for everyone, but I really enjoyed it. If you've heard me talk about some of the elements of MCU movies that I enjoy, I really like fun, strange music cues. Um, and there's a lot of those in this movie, some great 80s music. This movie is based on the true story of a woman named Patrizia Reggiani and her husband, Maurizio Gucci. And there's family drama, there's intrigue and murder mystery, kind not really mystery, but murder wrapped into this movie. The, again, the tone is a little bit frantic. There's some elements that are that are quite serious here. And there's some elements that are very funny. The fashions are wonderful to look at. I really enjoyed this movie. Definitely benefited from seeing it in the theater, but I recommend House of Gucci. Number 11 is a film I also had the chance to see in the movie theater, and I'm very glad I did. Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright, starring Thomasin McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. This was a movie that I was really looking forward to, based on my knowledge of who was starring in it and who directed it. Not dissimilar from Cruella and its premise that it's set in the world of fashion design, in London, uh, this time during the 1960s. So I was very much looking forward to, to, to the music of this film and the fashions of this film. And in reality, the reason why it's at 11 and not any higher is because the third act of the movie the, and the finale didn't exactly land for me the way that I had hoped it would. Um, and it's, I'm not trying to focus on something negative here. It is still my 11th favorite film of the year, but there was so much about this that I anticipated it would be even higher. But the aesthetics and, and the performances and the general vibe of this movie were just so awesome uh, to see right up my alley. I've been listening to this soundtrack nonstop since I saw it back in November. So at 11, last night in Soho. All right. So to recap, before we get into the top 10, 20, The Night House, 19, The Suicide Squad, 18, The Mitchells versus the Machines, 17, Nightmare Alley, 16, Cruella, 15, I Care a Lot, 14, The Power of the Dog, 13, The Lost Daughter, 12, House of Gucci, and 11, Last Night in Soho. At number 10 is a movie that I missed during its theatrical run, and I'm very upset that I did. I would love to see this on the big screen if it comes back at all. It's called The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry and starring Dev Patel. This movie really blew me away. I had heard great things about it, 
And when I finally sat down to watch it toward the end of the year, I, I rented it on Amazon. I was um, completely captivated by it, even more than I thought that I would. This is, if you haven't seen it, a fantasy story based on Arthurian legend. It follows Dev Patel as a character, Sir Gawain, who is King Arthur's nephew. And there's so much that I don't want to say about this movie if you haven't seen it. But it, it, after he engages in a game of sorts, he has to go on this quest and, and confront the Green Knight. And there's not, there's not much more that I want to say. Um, he the, the, the visuals of this film are absolutely gorgeous, the way that it's broken up into different chapters almost uh, with, with subheadings. It's so immersive. And it also really gets you thinking about morality and choices and life and death and ah, what a movie i i have only watched it the once but it's one that i'm looking forward to watching again because i think there's a lot that you would pick up on from from subsequent watches so that's number 10 the green knight and number nine i have bo burnham's inside which is a movie but it's also its own thing so in a way it feels outside of this ranking in the way that for me the mcu movies are outside of this ranking because the MCU movies are something I engage with in such a different way because I do the podcast and I see them so many times and I have to I have to just put them separate. But with Bo Burnham's Inside, I did put it on the main list here, put it at number nine. This is a, a comedy special, but it is also a look, a, a dark look into what it means to navigate the modern world in this time of COVID, in this time of of social media having such a huge impact on how people consume both entertainment and news. And it, it's a, a beautiful portrait of Bo Burnham or this version of himself that he's playing alone inside over the course of a year, creating music. And as he says, healing the world through comedy. And the songs are are absolutely spectacular. Another soundtrack that I've listened to a lot this year. A lot of feelings wrapped up in this one. It's It's sad. It's funny. It's relatable. And if you haven't yet seen it, I do highly recommend it. Even if you have not been a fan of Bo Burnham's comedy in the past, or or I'm not somebody who's a huge fan of comedy specials, but this is something completely unique unto itself. So highly recommend Bo Burnham's Inside at number nine. And shout out to Trey. I know this is one of his favorites of the year as well. And maybe someday we'll do a deep dive into Bo Burnham's Inside. That's also a movie you can find on Netflix. Number eight. A movie very similar, well, not very similar to Inside, but I'm treating it kind of similarly because, again, ranking these at nine and eight don't necessarily feel right because they feel like something to themselves. I'm ranking them where they are in terms of movies of the year. But just like Inside, The Beatles Get Back is very much its own unique experience. This is a three-part documentary series, but considering it to be one one film here. It's compiled from 60 plus hours of unseen footage of the Beatles as they're in the studio writing and recording songs, many of them that ended up on the album Let It Be. Also includes their final performance together as band, the rooftop performance at London's Seville Row. I don't know how to begin to describe this. Uh, the Beatles is a band that I've loved forever. And to have this intimate look at the footage, by the way, compiled and re-edited and, and presented in this way by Peter Jackson. This is uh, just magical to watch Paul McCartney writing the the riff for Get Back in real time, to see how the, the members of the band interacted with one another, especially in these days, so, so soon before the end of the Beatles. George Harrison is a 
person who I'm immensely fascinated by, all of them really, to see the way they interact, the different roles that they played, not just in the band, but interpersonally. This documentary is so long, but I was riveted the entire time watching them interact, hearing the music, hearing them sing different lyrics to songs that uh, would eventually make it onto these other albums, seeing some of the personality clashes, but then seeing also the moments where as songwriters and as creators, these people came together. There's a lot that I could say about The Beatles Get Back, and I don't want to get too off track here. Maybe this could deserve its own episode as well. But if you are a fan of The Beatles, certainly, I'm sure you've already seen it. Uh, Maybe if, if you're not, or maybe if the idea of watching a very, very long documentary is not appealing to you, I, it's not even like any music documentary that you've seen before. It it's, feels like very much watching these people together in the studio, creating together. And if you're a creator of any kind, I think you'll enjoy being able to see that world so purely depicted here. Okay, so Inside and Get Back here in my top 10, ranked a little bit lower just because of the nature of what they are as as unique pieces unto themselves. But the rest of these are more more traditional films. Number seven, a movie that, again, is probably ranked so high in part because of how much it surprised me and stuck with me in ways I didn't think it would, and that's Disney's Encanto. Did not see this in the theater, watched it on Disney+, Plus, but even at home, was just so into everything about this movie, the way it looks, the songs, and what a great Disney story. This was directed by Byron Howard and Jared Bush. It stars the voice talents of Stephanie Beatrice, among others, songs written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and... I think what really struck me about this movie is that it kind of breaks from traditional Disney films in a way in that, yes, we have a central protagonist, uh, but the story is not, there's not a central villain, if that makes sense, that it's very much about this girl navigating her role within her family. We've seen that before, but the other members of the family are also really fleshed out. And it feels very much a story about this family versus something. Now, again, not a traditional villain, but the, the, the pressures the, uh, that they have on them to fulfill their particular roles, as well as this real sense of of trauma carried down through generations. It, but it, it's, it feels very heavy when I say it that way. And I, I think that's what's behind this. I think why it resonates with me. But also, it's a really fun movie. It's beautiful. The characters are are in classic Disney fashion. You know, they're memorable. And the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, has been stuck in my head since I saw this movie. I, this is a great Great, great movie. And if you haven't seen it, highly recommend Encanto. Number six is a movie I did get to see in the theater this year. It's called King Richard, starring Will Smith as the father of Venus and Serena Williams, who are played brilliantly by two young actors, Sonia Sidney and Demi Singleton. Also stars Ingenue Ellis as their mother. And this was directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green. Never been a huge fan of the sports biopic. But this movie, man, really, really stuck with me. And I think it's because Venus and Serena are athletes who I've always been intrigued by and and have always wanted to know more of their story. Again, this movie focuses mostly on their father and his role. And that's how Venus and Serena wanted it. They're executive producers on the film. And this is the story that they wanted to be told. And it, it very much paints this portrait of a man who is very complex, wants the best for his family, but also makes some questionable decisions along the way. It's a, it's a long movie, but I found myself just fully engaged the whole time. The tennis scenes looked great, and the character work was just really, really beautiful. So that's King Richard at number six. Okay, top five. And you all know my relationship to ranking at this point if you listen to my show. I both love doing this as an exercise, but also hate it, because how do you really create a hierarchy when all of these different movies 
when all of these movies are so different. And that's why I chose not to even get the MCU movies involved because I just felt like I couldn't, I was not capable of putting them in the same category. It's so different for me. But at number five, I have a movie called Licorice Pizza. This is another one I was really looking forward to. It, it's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It stars Alana Haim from the rock band Haim, as well as Cooper Hoffman, a, a new actor, son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. A bunch of other very famous people make cameos in this movie as well. And if there's one thing that I think you're probably getting from my list here is that I really enjoy movies that immerse you in a particular period, specifically if it's a period that is known for having really awesome music and cool fashion. So this is set in California, San Fernando Valley, 1970s. And the needle drops of this movie are incredible. Probably my number one for the year in terms of needle drops alone. Although, man, Last Night in Soho, House of Gucci, another one on the list I haven't gotten to yet. There's so many good ones, so many good ones. But regardless, Licorice Pizza, Cooper Hoffman plays a teenager who, very ambitious, very precocious in all the right ways, also kind of obnoxious. And he develops this inappropriate attachment to relationship with Alana Himes' character, who is about 10 years older. And it follows their various adventures from, I don't want to give too much away, but from, from let's say, from waterbeds to pinball palaces. This is very much a movie set in the 1970s. The cinematography is gorgeous. The performances are fantastic. It feels like the type of movie that it's just like, you're along for the ride with these people. You're just hanging out with them. And are there some things in here that are morally questionable? Yeah, for sure. Is there a way of reading the relationship between the two main characters that is um, disturbing? Yes. Are there a couple of scenes in here that have gotten deservedly so some heat for being racially insensitive? Yes. NPR has done a lot of really in-depth coverage of all aspects of Licorice Pizza, and I could share some links about that if, you, if you're interested, because I do think the discourse is important, but the atmosphere of the movie was just really, really stuck with me. That's my number five, Licorice Pizza. And number four is a movie that I had heard about, didn't get a chance to see until January 2022, when it came to my local AMC for a few viewings. I was very excited that it did. It's called Parallel Mothers. It's directed by Pedro Almodovar. It stars Penelope Cruz and an actress who I was unfamiliar with, Melena Smith. The two of them meet in a maternity ward. They're both about to give birth, and they're both there under different circumstances. One who is excited about this opportunity to have a child and one who is not. And they form a connection. And the rest of the movie explores. And it's kind of all I want to say. There's a lot of twists and turns in this movie as well in terms of the relationship between those two characters in uh, the relationship between Penelope Cruz's character and the man who is the father of the child. And it's also set against this backdrop of exploring Spanish history and the impact again, kind of like Encanto here with of generational trauma on people. And uh, this is one of, one thing I didn't think that I would say when I came to do this top 20 is noticing noticing similarities between Last Night in Soho and Cruella, noticing similar, similarities between Parallel Mothers and Encanto. But, but here we are. Um, so yeah, this is a beautiful film. There's something so unique about Almodovar's style. And this is a Spanish language film that I watched with with subtitles because I'm not fluent in Spanish but that didn't take away from it at all. It was just so immersive and so fascinating. And I think that the the balance between the major story, the relationship and, and kind of thriller of, of the main 
characters, the parallel mothers, and then this historical context of fascism in Spain and the Spanish Civil War. It sounds like things that wouldn't necessarily go together, and yet they do in such a such a beautiful way. So that's number four, Parallel Mothers. Number three, Spencer, directed by Pablo Laron, starring Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana. This is a movie that I, again, while there's a lot of differences among the movies here on my list, this is another period piece, but a recent period piece. I like a lot of these movies that are set 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's the early 90s. This is Christmas weekend. Princess Diana is arriving at the palace to celebrate the holidays with the royal family. And there's this tension between her and Prince Charles, the relationship between her and her sons. And this is a movie that is not your standard royal family biopic look and feel. The score is by Johnny Greenwood, and it's one of my favorite things about the movie. It's very, very eerie, perfectly kind of captures the mood of Stuart's character. It can be in moments quite calm and in other moments quite frantic. It's gorgeous to look at this movie. It's absolutely gorgeous. The Again, the fashions, the atmosphere. There is a really great needle drop. You wouldn't expect it. A really fun, sweet needle drop in this movie toward the end. That really got me. Elements of psychological horror here as, as it dives into Princess Diana. And when I saw this in the theater, there were um, there were some people there who I don't think that they knew what this movie was really going to to look like because there were some objections from from some audience members who weren't expecting it to be quite as dark as it was. And um, yeah, highly recommend Spencer if you if you haven't seen it yet. An amazing performance from Kristen Stewart. And she's already won a, a bunch of awards. And I know there's Oscar buzz around her for this as well. And very, very well deserved, in my opinion. All right, at number two, a little film called Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård. Oh yeah, Zendaya is in this. Jason Momoa is in this. Star-studded cast. Turns out this is actually Dune Part 1, which was not as it was originally marketed, but it is, and I'm very excited about that. I loved this movie. I was not necessarily expecting to love this movie. I've yet to read the book. I actually just got myself a copy, and I'm going to be reading it this month. I loved this movie. I mentioned numerous times before that I go see the MCU movies as many times as I can in the theaters. A lot of the other films on this list I saw in the theaters. Dune and then the film I have at number one are the only ones other than MCU movies this year that I saw multiple times in the theater. And with Dune, it was just so such an incredible experience sitting there and watching this in IMAX for the first time that I, I knew I had to see it again. And I had a friend who wanted to go, so I was like, yes, we're going to Dune again. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's about a boy named Paul Atreides. He is a chosen one archetype. He goes on a journey, both literal and metaphorical. It's a story that explores prophecies. It's a story that explores colonialism and resources and fear. It's beautiful. I, I said this, I think, on my Eternals podcast because these movies came out around the same time and I saw them around the same time. This movie doesn't have the depth of, of character connection. I, I don't connect with the characters as much as I do in, let's say, an MCU movie. That's what's so special to me about the MCU. But that's not necessarily what this film is concerned with. I think this film is, is concerned much more with the overwhelming feeling of being immersed in this world. The score of this film is insane. It's so good. It's probably my favorite score of the year. So there you have it. I didn't realize I would be naming these 
these favorites, but Licorice Pizza, Best Needle Drops, Dune, Best Score. Although, man, Spencer, that score is something else, too. So many of these, but but okay, let me not get off track here. Dune, didn't feel particularly connected to the characters, but I did love the performances, specifically Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica Atreides. I was very intrigued by her, and I thought Timothy Chalamet was great. And I'm very much excited for Dune Part 2. I'm excited to read this book. But the thing that really struck me about the movie, more so than the characters in the story, was was what this felt like as a movie. I remember talking to Hannah from the Vox Popcast, and she mentioned how she felt the sublime when she saw Eternals on the big screen. I felt the sublime when I saw Dune for the first time on the big screen. I felt like I was touching something completely beyond what was presented there on the film screen. It was a really powerful experience, and and um, that's Dune. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend, highly recommend. I do know a friend of the podcast, Daniel, was a fan of this movie. We talked about it a bit. He sent me some great podcasts that uh, that talked about it in more depth. So shout out to Daniel. If you didn't like this movie, I think a couple of other friends of the podcast are not huge fans. Uh, sorry if this feels like a betrayal, but <laughs> I love I love Dune. But at number one, it's close. It's close. These number one and number two could could kind of switch spots depending on the day. But at number one, film very different from Dune. It's a much more intimate, smaller film. It's called Come On, Come On, and it was directed by Mike Mills and stars Joaquin Phoenix as a radio host. His sister, played by Gabby Hoffman, has to attend to some family stuff that I won't specifically get into. I don't want to like spoil too many plot points in this movie. And so Joaquin's character, Johnny, is left to care for his nephew and... The movie is very much about the relationship between him and his nephew, who's played by a wonderful child actor named Woody Norman. And as it's an exploration of this very personal story for these two characters, it's also more largely an exploration of the relationship between adults and kids, the relationship between adults and young people in in today's society. Because Johnny and the people he works with for their radio show they go across the country and they interview kids and young people and ask them, you know, what do you think the future is going to be like, among other questions. And the interview footage here, the the actual responses coming from these young people are real. The, the producers of the film really did these interviews. And so you get this insight into what these young people believe and and backgrounds on their stories. And they have they come from all different walks of life and live in different cities across the country. This movie is also unique in how it plays with intertextuality in that at a couple of different points, one of the characters will be reading a book or an article and the the source citation will come up on the screen, uh, letting audiences know where this is coming from. And there, there's a particularly resonant scene in which the Johnny character is reading the book Star Child to his nephew. Star Child is is a, a children's book, but more than a children's book too. It's a, it's a book about life and, and mortality. And so this movie is um, really interested in exploring these ideas, ideas of motherhood, of parenthood, of not being a parent, of, as I said, how young people and older people relate to one another. And this is something that I find to be really resonant for me in my own personal life because of the work that I do as a teacher and the amount of time that I spend with teenagers. And as I get older, the gap between where they are in their lives and where I am in my life, as I've, you know, I've been teaching for 10 years, that that gap widens and my curiosity only grows and my desire to understand them and what they're going through and how they experience the world and what they anticipate the future 
will be like is something that um, really motivates me and like sometimes scares me too. And this movie just <laughs> captured that in so many ways. I could only imagine what this movie feels like as a parent. Well, in a way I do know, I, I have a couple of close friends who I recommended this movie to and I got a chance to see it together and, and shout out to my friends, Aaron and Sean. They've actually been on the podcast before. We talked about Captain America Civil War together. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience of like seeing a movie and knowing that it's, it's just perfect for a particular person in your life. And I knew that this was going to be a, an Aaron movie because she is a parent and related to it in that way. And so talking to her about the movie. Um, and so the second time I saw it, I, I saw it with her and her husband, as I said, as well as my friends, Kat and Eddie. They have both also been on the podcast before. And I know that they're so interested in these questions as well. And we all just had an incredible experience with this movie together, talking about it and and experiencing the emotions that it brought up for us. So maybe this is turning people off from the movie, Come On, Come On, because um, my response to it has been so personal and my response to it has been something so tied to these friends of mine. I did see it the first time on my own and just walked out and, and I just had so many questions and so many ideas and it made me think of so many things related to my personal life and then I wanted to see what it would evoke for for these particular people who I knew would respond to it as well and then it prompted the sharing of these personal stories and I think it is a movie that will feel personal whether you are a teacher a parent none of those things but maybe you know have young people in your life in some other way maybe you're an aunt or an uncle Maybe maybe none of those things, but it, it does. It's just a, a beautiful film in a way that is very different from from the other beautiful films that have been on this list. It's beautiful in not just what it looks like and sounds like, but also in um, its exploration of humanity. And I've shared a lot of titles here today that explore maybe some of the darker aspects of humanity because <laughs> I love that. But this movie really also has a lot of joy and hope to it. And um, that's why I chose Come On, Come On as my number one. So to recap, 10 through 1, 10, The Green Knight, 9, Bo Burnham's Inside, 8, The Beatles, Get Back, 7, Encanto, 6, King Richard, 5, Licorice Pizza, 4, Parallel Mothers, 3, Spencer, 2, Dune, 1, Come On, Come On. So I want to thank you for taking this time to listen to me talk about some of the other films of 2021 that resonated with me beyond the MCU. As I said, it was just too difficult for me to merge it all together because of the relationship I have with the MCU doing the podcast. But this was really fun to branch out a little bit and for me to explore also some of the patterns and the things that I like. It was it was a cool self-reflection exercise in that way. But I'd also love to hear from you. If some of the movies I mentioned here today are among your favorites, write to me. Let me know why. If some of the movies on this list are ones that you haven't seen yet, I hope that you might check them out. And if you don't like them, let me know too, because we can have that conversation together. And if you'd like to hear more from me that's not necessarily related to the MCU, please do give me your feedback. If you felt like this was a waste of time and you only want to hear me talk about the MCU, I'm open to that feedback as well. So thank you again for listening. And stay tuned next time. I'm going to be starting a new mini series within the There Was an Idea podcast called Character Spotlight. And I'm going to be working with guests to trace the character arcs of some of our MCU favorites across multiple movies that they've been in and do some fun exercises related to that. Thanks again, everyone.